Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faiz Al Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Continuing our series on history, our guest today is Eugene Rogan, Professor of Modern Middle Eastern History at the University of Oxford. His magnum opus, The Arabs, A History, begins with the Ottoman conquest of the Levant and ends with the Arab Spring. It is widely considered to be one of the best and most authoritative attempts at a comprehensive history of the Arab world. More recently, in The Fall of the Ottomans, Rogan tells the story of the empire's defeat in the First World War and its subsequent collapse into various national movements. Eugene Rogan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Faisal. Good to be with you. So let's set the scene. It's 1914, the eve of the Great War, and the Ottoman Empire is about to be sucked into this global maelstrom that was ultimately result in its destruction. But even before going into the First World War, the situation was already quite dire, wasn't it? So paint me a picture of what the state of the Ottoman Empire is at that point. Well, in a sense, in the spring of 1914, the Ottoman Empire was experiencing a rare moment of hope and optimism after what had been you know, five years of just you know, great difficulty and war. I mean, really starting from 1908, when the Young Turk Revolution shocked the governance of the country, there was a sense among European neighbors of the Ottoman Empire that the Turks were were shaky and they began to take advantage of that. No one more so than the Italians looking to expand their empire in North Africa by occupying the last of the Ottomans' territories in North Africa in Tripolitania and in Benghazi. This is the you know, Turco-Italian War of 1911, which went badly for the Ottomans. They, they, they couldn't really try and mount a formal resistance to the Italians. So they sent some officers who went as volunteers to mobilize a kind of anti-Italian jihad in Libya. And the Italians, as the war dragged on, then began to target vulnerable points in the Ottoman Empire. Their fleet bombarded Beirut. They occupied roads. And then they encouraged Balkan neighbors, family members in Montenegro, to rise up in an ambitious war of expansion against the Ottomans in the last of the Ottoman Empire's European territories, which gives rise to the First Balkan War, 1912, where the Ottomans basically lose everything from Albania right across to Thrace. And the Second Balkan War of 1913, where the Ottomans managed to scrape back a bit of territory, reclaimed Edirne. But, you know, since 1908 until 1913, the Ottomans had just been through a turmoil of revolution and wars. And the spring of 1914, they'd gotten a big loan from the French to try and invest in their economies. They were rebuilding their military. The, The Germans had launched a mission to help them with that. And the British were helping them rebuild their fleet. And So there was a sense of reconsolidation, of reinvestment in the economy, and new hope, all of that about to be shattered when Europe goes to war in the summer of 1914. I mean, most people are obviously familiar with what happened after the First World War, but it sounds like just from that brief overview that there was the possibility pre the First World War, that the Ottomans might have found a way out of their difficulties. They would have had a reduced geographical region, but they still would have had the empire. There was a real sense that the Ottomans were distilling their empire down to something that would be more sustainable, if just because it was, for the most part, Muslim land, dominated by Turks, Kurds, and Arabs. 
But of course, within those lands, you still had very sizable Christian minority communities and Jewish communities that gave the Ottoman Empire its cosmopolitanism, but also gave rise to separatist movements, which the Ottomans were very wary of. They knew the meaning of the word balkanization, and it was where nationalism would fragment territories away. And so the Ottomans were you know, quite concerned about not seeing the cosmopolitanism of the empire deployed against the integrity of its territory. Mm. And so you have this threat from the outside. But then equally, there were internal politics that were just as turbulent. Well, I think that, you know, on the one hand, the young Turks were very keen to try and establish a, a consensus government uh, around an Ottoman nationalism. And, and so, you know, they were working very hard to win over Armenians and Greeks to their cause. But, you know, they, they, they found their position threatened very much by a perception among European powers that the performance of the Ottomans in the battlefield, in the two Balkan wars in particular, suggested that the empire was on its last legs. And I think it's at that point, in 1913, 1914, that particularly Russia begins to think in terms of a post-Ottoman age and mm -hmm. begins to think about what territories they want to make sure they secure for the Russian empire against rival claimants like Greece. And, and I think for Russia, the real concern was to make sure that Constantinople, the ancient capital of the Byzantine empire, the seat of Orthodox Christianity, if it should fall out of Ottoman hands, should fall into those of the Tsar and his family and become mm -hmm. Russian territories. And so already by February of 1914, you have the Russian, the Tsarist cabinet taking a decision that the first opportunity under the cloud of war, when a generalized European conflict would give them the chance, Russia would strike and it would try and take Constantinople away from the Ottoman Empire. And do you think the Russians in that period were the first major European power to start preparing for a post-Ottoman world? Well, interestingly enough, I think France had worked out its desiderata in Ottoman Asia. And they weren't so concerned with Constantinople or indeed Turkish territory. Their eyes were set on Syria and had been since their armies intervened in the massacres in Mount Lebanon and Damascus in 1860. France had been angling to try and secure a counterbalancing position in the Eastern Mediterranean to match its position in North Africa. And indeed, the fact that Britain was sitting uh, in Cyprus as a crown colony made the French want to balance out the British position in the Eastern Mediterranean. Syria seemed to hold all of the imperial advantages the French were looking for. And so I think, you know, in 1914, they too had a clear interest in a partition that would give them Syria out of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire. You say in the book that the Ottomans could have survived at least within the borders of modern Turkey had they harnessed Ataturk rather than agreeing to the, the peace settlement that was imposed on them after the war. I mean, it sounds like that there was a version of history, a, a quite possible version of history, where the, the, the Ottomans retreat from a lot of these lands that you're talking about, North Africa, the Balkans, the Levant, and they still, but they still end up with their empire broadly intact, the, the, um, the organization of it intact, and of course they maintain the, uh, the Turkish lands. Well, it's a poignant question in 2022 because we will be marking the centenary 
uh, that decisive act when the Kemalists abolish the Ottoman Sultanate and declare the state of Turkey independent of the Ottoman royal family. The last role for the Ottomans was for a year, no more, to hold the religious office of caliph, but no mm. longer the temporal command as sultan. And, you know, that was a resolution of a dual authority crisis that emerged in the aftermath of World War One and in the course of the Turkish War of Independence. And, you know, you can really see the position of both parties here. For the Ottomans, they saw no alternative to signing the draconian Treaty of Sevres that the victorious allies imposed on the Ottomans after their defeat in World War I. The Treaty of Sevres really led to a, a massive partition of the Ottoman Empire, not only carving off the Arab territories and parceling them out to the British and the French, but taking pretty much all of the Mediterranean coastline and awarding it to France or to Italy or to Greece. The Ottomans were left really with control only over a rump territory of the Black Sea coast and central Anatolia, and were only left in control of their capital city, Istanbul, uh, or Constantinople, so long as they adhere to the letter of the treaty at Sevres. Any, any failure to apply every single article of the treaty could lead the victorious allies to reconsider the terms of the treaty and take Istanbul away from the Turks. Mm. So I think the Ottoman government was committed to demonstrating their goodwill towards the victorious powers in the hope that they might be able to negotiate back some of the territory that they were conceding in the treaty and said. But the nationalists under Mustafa Kemal, later Ataturk, took the view that anything you gave away by the peace treaty, you would never get back. And so they were determined to fight the peace treaty with all they had. For the Sultan and his government, that was treason because they were acting outside the government's authority and put in jeopardy the remainder of Ottoman territory conceded by the Treaty of Sevres. I mean, in a sense, the Ottomans didn't believe that the Turks had any more fight left in them and believed that the Kemalists were behaving rationally very irresponsibly. The, the, the Kemalists... Kemalists Obviously, yeah, the they were right. Yeah, I was about to say that the Kemalists turned out to have been right. The, if, I've, if I've got this right, none of the territories that they ceded have ever been returned to the Turks. No, as it turned out, uh, the only territories that the Turks were able to retain were those that they conquered back through the Kemalist War of Independence. It was interesting to me reading the book, I think, is that unlike with the collapse of the Soviet Union, for example, which... Um, nobody really saw coming. Everybody seems to have foreseen the end of the Ottoman Empire. It was like a slow motion collapse. And the the young Turks, as you were talking about, they who were the key players, of course, in the story, were quite explicitly motivated by the fear of this collapse and were trying to figure out a way to stop the empire's demise. And yet, in doing so, they seem to have hastened it. And so as a reader, I kind of found it hard to escape the conclusion that maybe the fall really was inevitable. I wonder if you had the sense writing it. I mean, I'm a little disappointed by your take. I, it suggests that I failed in my, my subversive purpose, which was to actually argue that the fall wasn't so inevitable. I really was struck in doing my research on the book by 
how determined a war the Ottomans fought. They, they'd been written off from the very beginning as the weakest chain in the central powers, or the weakest link in the central power chain. And, you know, they wound up driving the British and French out of Gallipoli. They wound up encircling and beating the British army in Kut el Amara. And they defeat the British army twice at the gates of Gaza. So, you know, this was a country that showed remarkable tenacity. Uh, confession, the, the title was actually my publisher's choice. I had intended to call the book The Ottoman Front, you know, like the Western mm, Front or the Eastern sure. Front. Yeah. And, you know, for their own reasons, and I think commercially, they thought that the drama of the title, The Fall of the Ottomans, would resonate better with readers. And looking at how the book is sold, you know, hats off to my publishers for getting that one right. But <laughs> right. I was I was definitely coming at the book for the angle. They didn't need to fall. They fought a surprisingly good war. And I think the tenacity of the Ottomans was a more interesting part of the story than, let's say, an inevitable fall would have been. So you can imagine a world in which the empire had survived. You don't think that these centrifugal forces that were pulling it apart were unstoppable. Well, it's one of those counterfactuals that is fun to ponder, but of course is ultimately meaningless. Had they stayed neutral, they could have survived. I think that that's absolutely true. The, the, the pros to Ottoman neutrality would have been in no time at all the Sultanate would have inherited the oil resources, certainly in Mesopotamia and quite possibly of parts of the Persian Gulf. So we might have seen the emergence of an oil sultanate instead of the oil shakedoms of the 20th century. Mm. And of course, the Middle East would not have been characterized by the Arab-Israeli conflict because the British would not have been in a position to make the Balfour Declaration had the Ottomans right. been a neutral party. But the downside is they would have had to have contained the forces of nationalism, which we've already made reference to were motivating Armenian separatism, Greek separatism, and Arab separatism. And whether or not the Ottomans could have shown the conciliatory policies that might have kept the Arabs on board is anyone's guess. But the young Turks, right up until the outbreak of the First World War, had banked on repression. And I don't know that repression would have been the best long-term policy. How it would have played out is anyone's guess, but it's a fun counterfactual to ponder. Well, that's why with these counterfactuals, it's complicated, because as you say, it wasn't if even if the empire had survived, that's not the end of the story. It doesn't the, the empire doesn't survive. And it's then 1925 and you click your fingers and here we are 100 years later. There are all these other forces, political forces of nationalism, and so on, to navigate over the intervening decades. And so, of course, we have to look at the world that came in the aftermath of the First World War, rather than the world that we might have imagined. <laughs> but have the imagined, interesting yeah, thing there yeah. is that, you know, the, the, the fall of the Ottoman Empire has continued to resonate right down to a century later. I mean, I think that there are still things that we can point down, point yeah. to, that, yeah. that say that this development was, is, has influenced the world as we know it now. Well, that absolutely. And so I, I, it's actually we were talking to our um, a culture editor of the magazine, Lydia Wilson, who is also a historian um, about the podcast. And she said that, you know, the question of whether the Ottoman Empire could have survived was a version of um, the Needham question, like the idea that asking counterfactuals in history is not actually all that helpful. But I think in the context of the Ottomans, there is something about the counterfactual, about them surviving that is interesting, because the collapse of the caliphate did have an impact on the 
the appeal to political authority by Muslim groups and Muslim states over the past century. And so, as you were suggesting, it is possible to think that the history of the Middle East would have been rather different. And it, to some degree, we can delineate some of those differences if we, you know, if we imagine them. Well, I mean, the first thing to state is before we get to, let us say, the caliphal influence of the Ottomans being politically relevant, a lot of the 20th century was taken up with out and out secular nationalism. And I, I think the forces that really shaped the post-Ottoman Middle East were in the first instance, anti-imperialist nationalism. And then in the second half of the 20th century, the kind of military nationalism brought about by the Arab-Israeli conflict and the struggle against the sort of Soviet or American domination of the Cold War. But, you know, really wasn't until the last quarter of the 20th century that I think Islam came to play a power of relevance in the politics of the region. Maybe our story is more interesting in the way in which it plays on nation-state nationalisms, both in those cases of the countries that emerged you know, Iraq, Syria, whatever, but also the nations like the Kurds or the Palestinians who saw their national aspirations denied and whose nationalist searches continue to be destabilizing to the region for the past hundred years. Mm. I want to move on to talk a bit about the war itself. Um, but before we start, I actually wanted to ask you what I thought was a, a personal question, because I wondered if your views on um, the inevitability of history were affected by your own personal connection to World War I. You write in the preface that uh, about your great uncle, who was a Scottish soldier whose death at Gallipoli you say you, know, you owe your life to. And I get the impression that you consider your own existence to have been quite a close run thing in the end. <laughs> well, Faisal, I mean, if you look into any family tree, you realize how precarious our existence, yours and mine, is at the end yeah. of the day. You know, yeah, all yeah. it took is one great-grandmother not to look at one great-grandfather, and we wouldn't be talking <laughs> to each other now. Oh, no. Exactly. And but that, it is touching. And those of us you who know, have I, researched our those of us who have researched our family trees know exactly which one we're thinking of. <laughs> exactly. So we, we're all accidents of history. We're lucky to be here. Let's make the most of it. But I was touched by the death of the 19-year-old John McDonald because so much of my Scottish ancestors' migrations were linked to that tragedy. Mm. You know, you realize one person's passing could really influence a community and and set change in motion. And it was just a touching moment to go visit his grave with my mother, right. uh, who is still with us, thank goodness, and with my son, who was a little boy at that time. About 95 years after he died, the first family members to actually go out and see him. And as, as I said, you know, recognizing that his death provoking the movement of the McDonald's from Scotland to America was instrumental in my maternal grandmother meeting my maternal grandfather and making my mother without whom none of us would have been there. It was just one of those moments of of seeing in the death of a young 19-year-old, you know, consequences yeah. that were very personal. So young. I mean, to think about it now, so young. So young. So young. The the other aspect of your your own particular historical story is that your your great uncle was killed at Gallipoli. And that was quite famously a gambit on the part of the British war planners to knock the Ottomans out of the war early. Um, but the Ottoman forces, and I think this is a part of what you are trying to, you were saying earlier that you're emphasizing in your book, the, the Ottoman forces provide, proved to be much more effective 
at fighting than had been predicted. The Ottoman forces were incredibly tenacious in defending their territory. And that's particular to, let us say, the Ottoman defense of Gallipoli, but it's also a general feature of the First World War, which is that the armies of defense always had a better time in battle than did the armies that took the offense, simply because if you wished to attack, you had to come out of the trenches and go across no man's land, whereas defenders staying in their trenches, while they would still face terrible attrition from machine gun fire and from artillery shelling and all the other hells of war that were unleashed in that industrial conflict of World War I, nonetheless, the people in the trenches always came out better. So, you know, defenders uh, trying to repel uh, the British, the colonial soldiers, and the French contingent in Gallipoli uh, had to fight very tenaciously, but the odds were on their side and actually were, were strikingly against those trying to make landings in such inhospitable terrain. As mm-hmm. any of your listeners who have been to Gallipoli will confirm, you know, the, the beachheads were very narrow and the, the rise from the beachheads to the land above is very steep. It was killing fields for anyone trying to occupy those lands unless they did so in numbers that Kitchener was simply not willing to commit to Gallipoli, given his overwhelming priority of fighting the war on the Western Front. So starved of the kind of troops that would take to overwhelm Ottoman defenses, the numbers were in a order of magnitude that Ottoman defenders with a lot of good material supplied to them by their German allies were able to use to contain until finally the Anglo-Imperial position was untenable, and the best that the British could manage in December 1915, January 1916, mm-hmm. was to effect uh, a casualty-less retreat from the territory, uh, which was, you know, no small accomplishment, but it handed the Ottomans their first major victory of the First World War, and was a tremendous boost to their confidence in the, the years that was to follow. I wanted to talk um, about the memory of the war, because part of your motivation for writing the book, as you said, was that you felt the importance of the Ottoman front during the First World War had been neglected, and not just by Western historians, but also by the people of the region. So in the national memories of Arab countries, you wrote, it's considered someone else's war. And I particularly like this phrasing, it was somebody else's war that left martyrs, but no heroes. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Well, I would distinguish here between the native Turkish speakers in the Ottoman Empire who were able to point to key battlefield victories and to individual heroes like Mustafa Kemal, later Ataturk, to preserve a memory of the First World War as one in which they really don't draw the line between the Ottoman defeat in 1918 and the ultimate Turkish triumph in the War of Independence. To them, it's all kind of one period of war that sees the emergence of the Turkish Republic as you know, a victory for the, for the Turks. And to this day, the commemoration of victory in Gallipoli is one in which Australians and New Zealanders, other combatants, will assemble to mark the suffering uh, shared by Turks and, 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 and the British and Imperial soldiers as the kind of shared experience 
very generous by the Turks because the Turks saw themselves as victorious in Um So I would distinguish that from um, what little limited recognition goes on in the Arab world, where the martyrs I was thinking of were actually Arab nationalists who had been singled out by the Ottoman young Turk leader, Jamal Pasha, for execution for their separatist views and were hanged in Damascus and in uh, Beirut in the summer of 1916, and where the squares in which they had been hung publicly would later be commemorated as uh, you know, the, the, the martyr's square. Um, you know, the Burj area of downtown Beirut, for instance, was Shahada with a, a big statue commemorating the, the victims of Ottoman brutality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, so, you know, you, you had you had uh, that that contrast, but there's there's no kind of recognition of the hundreds of thousands of Arabs who were conscripted into the Ottoman army, who fought on all the fronts. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to you from France right now, and every French village I go to has got a monument, which the names of every single villager who perished in the war is commemorated. You could have the same in villages across Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, across Egypt and North Africa. All these countries were drawn directly into the war, but mm. they, their, their losses were not seen as people who fought for those nations. They were the victims of a rash young Turk government who took them into a war that the Arabs had no stake in and had no wish to participate in. That's the the settled view, you think, across North Africa and the Levant today? It would seem that way to me. And I, I think the few exceptions are cases where, out of good ties to the modern state of Turkey, uh, memorials have been established. There, there's, there's one in Jordan, for instance, next to the... Uh, the old high school in the town of Salt, outside of Amman, right. commemorating the Turkish war dead in World War I. It's, it's, it's a rare exception to the rule that I'm referring to of otherwise just not recognizing those, who, those Arab soldiers who died in Ottoman uniforms. Yeah, it's not, it's not common at all. That narrative is almost entirely written out of the history of the Arab world. Well, again, a lot of the 20th century nationalism of the Arab world was blaming the Arab predicament on having been held back by the experience of being part of the Ottoman Empire. They talked about Ottoman despotism, the forced yeah. backwardness. And so people didn't wish to commemorate the Ottoman experience uh, through a lot of the 20th century. Mm. And, and maybe now there's a re-examining of that history. I, I see more and more history books and memoirs coming out in Arabic, readdressing the First World War. but. You know, it remains the case that the war is, is really seen as something that was imposed on rather than participated in by the Arabs. Well, part of the reason, of course, is that the history of that period is not over. I mean, the issues that came out of that particular period, as we said earlier, with nationalism and so on, were still being played out. They haven't come to any settled conclusion. But I mean, I think some settled conclusions have emerged through, you know, the, those nation states that have proved enduring. So, Heaven knows, in the years since 2011, we've seen even countries like Iraq and Syria really rocked to their core and their, their national unity very much put into question. Uh, yeah. Certainly the emergence yeah. of Daesh or the Islamic State movement trying to transcend the European-imposed nation-state boundaries of Syria and Iraq 
took part of its legitimacy from overturning that order as being sort of not a reflection. But I think the real losers since Ottoman times have been the Kurds and the Palestinians, whose you know, legitimate national aspirations have been stymied by either the way the Europeans drew the boundaries or the way in which the dominant powers within those boundaries have denied them their national aspirations. Right. To move on to the Armenian genocide, you put the Armenian genocide right at the heart of the story, right from the very first chapter, you make sure to talk about the the way that there was this growing hostility to Armenians inside the Ottoman uh, Empire as this potential fifth column. And that happened decades before the First World War. Um, I wondered if that was something that you thought was really essential to telling the story of how the Ottoman Empire came to a conclusion. But I think because the Armenian genocide stands as the single greatest instance of civilian suffering during the First World War, there was no way to edge around addressing the issue. And it is, even today, enormously controversial. It's an unresolved issue between Armenians in the world who feel that the Turkish state has never acknowledged its responsibility for genocide, and that Turkish state, which has at times criminalized even the use of the word genocide to describe what measures were taken against Armenians, that, you know, for most of its history, the Turkish Republic has preferred to see as a consequence of war rather than of any deliberate planning. My role as a historian is not to take sides between disputing parties, but it's rather to try and arrive at the best historical explanation for the events as they unfolded. In that, I needed to really contextualize why a genocide took place during World War against Armenians. And the context of the war, I think, is absolutely essential. I, I would say that the genocidal tendency against Armenians had emerged before. There had been massacres of a horrendous scale in the 1890s in eastern Anatolia and in 1909 in the city of Adana. And that violence needs to be explained. But I don't think a genocide in World War I was necessary. I think that the cooperation of Armenian nationalist movements with the Young Turk movement and in the Ottoman parliament demonstrates that a very different future was possible between Turks and Armenians than genocide, but that I think the specific context of the defeat of the Ottoman Third Army after the Battle of Sarakamash, one of the first offenses the Ottomans take in December 1914, January 1915 against the Russians in the Caucasus, the defeat of the Third Army by the Russians and the play on Armenian loyalties between the Russians and the Turks leaves the Armenians of Eastern Anatolia in a position of vulnerability and the perception of being a fifth column that gives rise to uh, what a great deal of Turkish scholarship based on Turkish sources or Ottoman sources has come to demonstrate is, is very clearly an attempt to eliminate the Armenians down to five to 10% of the population. This kind of demographic extermination we call genocide. I thought we should talk about the Ottoman legacies. The, the narrative of the book more or less ends at the same point as the empire did in 1919. 
But since we were talking about the politics of memory in Turkey and elsewhere, I wanted to hear your thoughts on how the empire has been remembered in the years since. So in Turkey, of course, Ataturk quite deliberately set out to distance the republic from the Ottoman legacy. And I think now, looking back at it, you would say that that was only partly successful because under his successors, especially now with AKP and Erdogan, this Ottoman nostalgia has, not only has this Ottoman nostalgia re-emerged, I think it's really been reintegrated into Turkish nationalism over the past 20 years. There's no doubt that this question of neo-Ottomanism has really come to haunt analysis of Turkey under the AKP and under Erdogan in particular. And, you know, there's a funny balance struck because at one level, after decades of condemning the Ottoman Empire as having been backwards and corrupt and contrasting that with the virile and well-led Turkish Republic, people for much of the past century in Turkey, you know, had very little good to say of the Ottoman Empire, other than it was really interesting history, and they liked to frame the firmans of their forebears who'd held public office with the you know, beautiful cipher of the Sultan of the Head, the Torah, and, uh, and it was culture, it was heritage, but it, it wasn't politically relevant, and certainly nothing that was as good at delivering for the welfare of the Turkish people as the Turkish Republic. Now, the one thing that I think the Kemalists might have overplayed was the secularism of Turks, because while that might have held comfortably for well-educated urbanites in Izmir and in Ankara and in Istanbul, and in the country as a whole, the devotion to Islam remained very strong. And the sense that the state was intolerant of observation of Islam was something really striking. I, I remember my first visit to Turkey in the mid-1980s, going to the um, ancient city of Konya, mm. where Jalaluddin Rumi's grave is. And of course, this is a site of veneration for many Turkish Sufis. Uh, the Mevlevis, the turning dervishes, all trace their particular worship. And the the place where Rumi's buried is a was at that time a museum. So the turbids are the tombs of the great Sufi master and of his you know most famous devotees were places that tourists like me would buy a ticket to go and see. But as I went to visit Konya, I noted that most of the people visiting the museum, the, the lodge, were in fact Turks and they were pious Turks and they'd come to pray. And I, I felt very conscious of respecting, you know, these religious people coming to worship. But the curators of the museum were very intolerant. And the moment they saw the Turks were beginning to do their, their worship, they would come in and ask them to move on. This was a museum. This was not a place for prayer. And it was striking because I entered Turkey from Jordan and Syria, places where public worship was certainly considered pious and acceptable and, and was increasingly encouraged, uh, the contrast was striking. And I, I felt that if anything, there was something intolerant about the secularism. Why is that relevant to today? Well, mm. I think in a sense, there has been a growing backlash by rural pious Turks 
against the domination of the Kemalist secularists and the role that big cities played in setting the culture of the Turkish Republic. And before you saw Erdogan, you know, there had been a couple of Islamist parties that had made a bid for power that had only been checked by the intervention of the Turkish army, who had always been the protectors of the Kemalist Republic and its secularism. Erdogan was the one who finally managed to win uh, control of the parliament and emerged as a reformist prime minister whose success in the economy and in rallying you know, major electoral majorities had really made him a force to be reckoned with who was able to contain the challenge of the army. And suddenly, you know, a great deal of his popularity having been based on bringing, you know, a kind of Islamic democracy to Turkey, respecting the democratic values of the multi-party system in Turkey, but respecting the cultural value of Turks as Muslims had earned him a great following. And, you know, as a result, we've really seen in Turkey under Erdogan a kind of cultural war where the AKP defined itself as the legitimate Islamic party, overturning the intolerance of Kemalist secularism, and where Erdogan has really tried to impose his portrait over that of Ataturk as the, the most sort of formative ruler of the modern Turkish state. And, and in that, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the nostalgia for the Ottoman past might be by trying to link, you know, Turkish greatness to those periods where it was closest to its Islamic roots. And in yeah. that erasing the Kemalist history is promoting the, the Ottoman past in a way that was unthinkable for most of the you know, past century. Yeah, the 20th century becomes a kind of interregnum for them between the end of the caliphate and the arrival of Erdogan and the AKP, something like that. But for the secularists, of course, this is still a joke. And so when Erdogan builds a great palace for himself in, in Ankara, secular Turks in Ankara refer to it as the, the Sultan Sarai. You know, it's like he's got delusions of grandeur. Yeah. And so it, be, it, it remains a kind of double-edged appeal uh, this this hearkening back to ottoman it's in, yeah it's interpreted very differently i think in in like in the rural parts where they don't look at it as this kind of aggrandizement of erdogan they actually look at it as a return to the greatness of turkey something like that that would be my impression but of course you have to keep delivering at the economic level, bringing the kind of growth that we knew in the early years of Erdogan's rule, which in the past five years has simply evaporated. Mm. And so I don't think hearkening back to a romanticism around Ottomanism is enough to keep the AKP in power. I, I think there is a certain amount of realpolitik at the political and economic level mm. that underlies uh, you know, how people vote. And I'm not, I wouldn't count on Ottomanism or neo-Ottomanism to be a particularly strong calling point for the AKP moving forward. We've talked a bit about the kind of forgetting by the Arabs of that particular period of history, but it's also happened with other parts of the former Ottoman lands, like the Balkans. So there, I mean, when you talk about neo-Ottomanism, that has also happened in the in the Balkans, where in the last 20 years, what the, the writer Elif Scott talked about, a ghost empire in the Balkans, that has started to begun waking up. Like it's not merely that Erdogan has decided that foreign policy 
his foreign policy needs to be involved in the Balkans. It's also that the Balkans, having spent much of the 20th century trying to move towards Europe, now having been rejected by the European Union, they seem like they're moving back and rediscovering their Ottoman identity. Well, a lot of the Balkan territories are, in fact, in the European Union. And most took their nation-state nationalism uh, to success in opposition to the Ottoman Empire. So Bulgaria, Greece, Romania, you know, these are not countries that are reconsidering their Ottoman past and hearkening back to the good old days. Population exchanges really going right up to the end of the 20th century, particularly between Bulgaria and Turkey, have meant that there are just very few Muslims left in a lot of those Balkan countries. And, um, you know, so I think what the exceptions would be those territories in former Yugoslavia, which with the breakup of Yugoslavia, were to rediscover their Muslim identity. And, and probably none were to suffer worse than the Bosnians in Serbia, uh, where I think, you know, until the invasion of Ukraine, Europe saw its most horrific war since the end of the Second World War. And, and you know, that would definitely stand as one example of a kind of rejection of the post-Ottoman nation states and uh, hearkening back to the culture of an Islamic Ottoman Empire, certainly for the, the Bosnian Muslims. I want to end by talking a bit about your work as a historian, your kind of thinking about history. We open by talking about history in terms of these big structural forces. But really what makes reading history worthwhile is the stories of individual people. There's something very profound about finding a small sense of connection with a person from the past or understanding how, how they saw the part of the world from their perspective at that time. And I think that's something, it's clear, at least from the book, that that's something that you think is very important. And I imagine it's even more powerful uh, as a historian when you're writing about it because you're working off documents that perhaps are in their own handwriting and things like that. I wonder how you balance the insights that you find into individuals from the past and their actions and their motivations. How do you balance that with this sense that uh, as uh, as the writer L.P. Hartley put it, the, the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. Like, how do you understand people from what might be an alien context to yours? It's a great question. And I think you put your finger on something that's really deeply entrenched in my writing of history. I, I have nothing but respect for my colleagues in the profession who are the great theoreticians and who operate at a large structural level. You know, that is uh, exciting history intellectually, but I think it really appeals most strongly to people within the guild itself, the students and the faculty and history departments reading the scholarly journals. I think the kind of history that's most immediately interesting to general readers uh, is history that links them to the stories of individuals. We're, we're all drawn to the individual experience. And coming back to your question, in a way I find turning to individuals and their experience of that time, they become my guides to the foreign land you refer to as history. I, I see each one of them as the people who can interpret their time for me because 
at this remove of time and geography, I have such a hard time understanding what they went through. And I, I, I found that particularly, I'm, I'm currently working on a book on 1860s Damascus, and I'm reading tons of manuscript sources from that time, from people who were eyewitnesses to horrific events. Mm. And, you know, the language has changed. If you read Damascene Arabic from 1860, there are turns of phrase that, you know, people just don't use anymore. There are even words that people don't use anymore. And each one of those becomes a kind of window that allows you just a little insight into the gulf between us today and the world that I'm writing about 150 years ago and more. And the individuals who, because I spend so much time reading their manuscripts, I, I get under the skin of what they're saying and they become, if you like, translators for me of their, of their historic experience. They're the very ones who will be able to allow me to communicate in a compelling and vibrant way what they went through, what the world was like then. And I feel that that makes history just come alive for me and for my readers in a way which uh, it's very exciting. You talk about the language, for example, um, but there must be other aspects to it that are quite difficult to understand the context of. I mean, you can understand what they wrote. You may understand the words, but sometimes if these words are particularly colloquial or, as you say, they've fallen out of usage, it can be difficult to really understand what it would have sounded like to others at the time. I wonder if that's an example of what I was going to ask you about the limits of writing history. What do you think the limits of writing history are in your own experience? Well, you know, the limits of history are part of what keeps history alive. We can continue generation after generation returning to historic subjects and continue to add new insights from new sources or new interpretations or new methods. You take a something uh, you know, as, as well-studied as the French Revolution, what more could we possibly hope to say about a historical phenomenon that's been so widely covered over the past 200 and nearly 250 years? And yet, and yet, every generation continues to rewrite that history. The fact that I can return to the First World War or to 1860s Damascus and continue to be finding new sources, bring new interpretations to bear on it, you know, the, the fact that there still remain things that we can't quite work out, that we haven't been able to resolve, will leave to the next generation uh, the invitation to pick up where we leave off and to make that history come alive for the next generation. So that in addressing these compelling areas of continuous interest for all of us, that the field of history remains a vibrant and thriving thing, that there's never the final definitive version, and then we can put that to rest. We will continue to struggle with understanding the past, to make mistakes that others will correct, to find new sources that suddenly explain what that turn of phrase actually meant, and, um, and to keep history vibrant and relevant to us all. Eugene Rogan, thank you very much. Faisal, thank you so much for the opportunity. You can buy Eugene's most recent book, The Fall of the Ottomans, in all good bookshops. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.